This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Maria. And I'm Luc-Olivier Dumablet. And our topic this week is... Post-WWDC. Awesome. Uh, but first, I heard you have some follow-up. Yes, I'd just like to mention that uh, it seems that I don't know how to count. Okay. You didn't mention that I screwed up the outro last episode. Oh, this is true. You said it was episode 64, but it was 65. Yes, so if you want to have access to the show notes of last episode, you go to limitlesspossibility.net slash 65. Now try not to screw it up. Well, actually, I have to try to yes. not screw it up at the end of the episode. And this episode is episode 66. Don't, don't forget about it. Yeah, I have a giant 66 in my face, so I should be good. Okay. Now that we're... Whoa. Was that our quickest follow-up ever? Well, if we move on very quickly, yes, probably. Good. So, uh, this year for our post-WWC episode, I suggested that we do something super different compared to our typical post-WWC episode. So, Yannick and I have identified two sessions each we would like to talk about in more details. And for me personally, it will be the two CarPlay session of this year. Do you want to talk about the title of the yours, Yannick? Yeah, I'm going to be talking about introducing CoreML, and uh, I don't have the full title, but the session on the vision framework, which is related to CoreML, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah, so the way we'll do it is I'll talk about my two sessions, which they are kind of related to each other, because they are about CarPlay, and Yannick will do the same about the CoreML and the vision one. So let's start with CarPlay. Um, again, this year, Apple had two sessions regarding CarPlay, and those two are the one re- are the one that I decided to talk about. But before we talk about this year's session, I want to quickly revisit last year's CarPlay's offering. So in WWDC 2016, and I think it was for the first time ever, Apple offered sessions that were not part of the WWDC schedule. And I think what I mean by the first time ever is since they started streaming and uploading the video quite fast, it, it was the first time that we just saw a presentation that were posted during the week, kind of as a surprise, because those presentations were not on the schedule. Uh, so the presentational style is exactly the same as a typical WWDC session, except that you never see the speaker because it's recorded in a studio. So the speaker is obviously talking over slides like a typical um, WWDC talk, but... Uh, the main point that is the first from it is there's no demo, so no need to see the speaker. I think it's a bit of a downside though, because what I liked about seeing this, uh, seeing the speaker uh, from the session is every year you can like, oh yeah, I remember that person working on UIKit, or that person used to work on the insert framework that is not UIKit and now is on UIKit. So it's nice to see where people are and see the familiar faces every year. Um, Last year's CarPlay offering was two sessions on the same main topic. And obviously that topic, because CarPlay hasn't been part of any session at all, was developing CarPlay system. So we had session 722 and 723, and both were titled Developing CarPlay System. 722 was part one and 723 was part two. And after watching five minutes of part one, you could understand quite clearly that typical iOS and Mac developers were not the targeted audience for those sessions. They were clearly aimed at infotainment system makers and uh, car makers. The gist of those two sessions was to explain how CarPlay works as a system and what its relationship with the infotainment system of the car and uh, whether it was the first 
first party or third party unit because it will explain all of the current like uh, sequences of events the workflows you could have and the content of the session goes from hardware requirements like connection like uh, connection workflows and especially advices and recommendation regarding the user experience because apple knows it cannot control every minute detail for the ad unit so they came out with recommendation that car makers and infotainment system makers should apply and when i say should apply you know apple it's like listen to us we know better and of course the car companies think ha, yeah right like i'm gonna listen to apple yeah but if you listen to a lot of design uh related session from any other apple products whether it's like ios design session or mac ios design session it, it is pretty like the recommendation they do seems pretty straightforward they, and they mostly talk it's not i wouldn't say it's not specific on this point it's more about the general user experience like they say like a good example they repeated this year is when your phone is connected to carplay you should make sure that you remember what was the last user action so whether it was playing the radio it should continue playing the radio even if carplay was connected um, and it's not like switching to the the audio of your phone even if before you enter the car uh it was listening to and all of those problems they go into uh great details to explain what the what they are the recommended session and what is the latitude that the uh, car maker have uh lastly on the 2016 session i find it quite interesting that apple released those videos the same year carplay gained traction with car makers uh just to remind you 2016 was the year where we saw full lineups of car integrating CarPlay. Obviously, this year, 2017, saw also major adoption by most manufacturers, but 2016 was the initial push. So now let's come back to the current year because 2016 is 2016 and it's now in the past. So again, this year, Apple posted two CarPlay sessions mid-conference whilst uploading normal session. Um, if I recall correctly, they were uploaded Wednesday night or early Tuesday, Thursday. They were uploaded, the way I remember it is they were uploaded at the same time as the kind of second day or mid-conference video. So I would say like, just take into concern like Wednesday night or Tuesday, Thursday morning in the one through time zone. About the content of those sessions, there was only one aimed this year at infotainment system and car makers the other one is more for application developer which is a welcome change so this year's sessions are 717 developing wireless carplay system and 719 enabling your app for carplay and we will start with developing wireless carplay system just as a reminder wireless carplay was introduced a while ago to be exact it was introduced part of ios 8.3 in 2015 Oh my, it makes me so sad when I read those numbers because CarPlay has been introduced, was introduced in 2014, part of iOS 7.1. And like I said, while talking about the last year session, 2016 was the year where we saw a lot of new cars getting CarPlayed and you, or you can have it ordered with a car. And it's a full two, two years and a half after the introduction of that technology. So... A full two years again after the introduction of the wireless CarPlay, we start seeing some traction behind it. Uh, at the beginning of the year, we saw the first car company adopting a wireless CarPlay, and it was BMW that added it to its uh, new BMW 5 Series lineup. 
uh, for this year. Um, the session itself about wireless CarPlay was divided into two main topics. The first one was about the setup and pairing workflows, and the other part was about the hardware requirements that differ from the wired hardware requirements. And we will start uh, by talking about the pairing workflow because I think that was the most interesting part of that uh, session. As expected, Apple requires that the experience be the same whether the user uses wired CarPlay or wireless CarPlay. Pairing can be done in two ways, either using the USB cable or using the car or your phone's pairing UI. The wired pairing workflow reminds me of how you can pair the new Mac accessories. Remember the new keyboard, the new mouse, they use the lightning cable to do pairing and then it's just kind of done instantly and magical. Uh, for CarPlay, it's the same. You do the initial connection through the wire and it will initialize all of the CarPlay stack through the wire. But after, after the initialization, it will ask you if you would like to go wireless, if you would like to enable the wireless mode. By enabling the wireless mode, it will only exchange the pairing keys with the head unit. So the next time you connect to your car, but you're not connected to USB, it would be able to use a wireless CarPlay. If you want like to pair using either the phone's UI or the car's UI, the workflow looks more like a pairing Typical, uh, typical pairing workflow. Whether you're pairing a, like an Android phone or any other Bluetooth devices, also Apple recommends that car makers and uh, end unit makers can develop a specific CarPlay pairing UI where only the list of available devices that support CarPlay is shown. But you can. The car makers can still adapt their current Bluetooth UI, and if you select an iPhone, for example, it gives you the option of saying, do you want to use CarPlay or you just want to use a typical uh, Bluetooth connection. Uh, after that, the session goes through a lot of explanation about the boot sequences, the reconnecting sequences, and the pairing sequences. But I want to skip those details because uh, they are quite heavy. So if you want to see those, I will gladly invite you to watch the session because they use a lot of... Uh, sequence graph and they will explain like okay so when you connect then this un this part of the unit goes through uh, so usb and then it goes to wi-fi and then it goes to bluetooth and they do that obviously it's more useful for people that develop those units but it's super interesting to see lastly for setup and pairing uh, carplay always keeps the first connection method available for example if your phone is configured for wireless carplay and the second you enter your car, you plug it in, it will use the wireless CarPlay, uh, the wired CarPlay, excuse me. On the other end, if you start your CarPlay session wirelessly and you decide to plug in your phone because it's running low on battery while you're driving, it won't switch to wired. Remember at top when I was talking about the first time you could pair a device with wirelessly but using the cable, that first session will still continue to work on wired until you need to power cycle your head unit or the whole car uh, and it, then the head unit will be able to go through its boot sequence and then it will go through its priority order and then detect which connection is available first whether it's usb or wireless and then it will uh, choose appropriately the reason apple says they do that is to not cut the experience midway if they detect one to the other. So if they choose a connection, they will stick to it 
unless there's a deconnection notification, whether it loses connection with the phone or you unplug the phone, obviously. The second part of that session was about the hardware requirements of wireless CarPlay. And as you may expect, if wireless CarPlay is wireless, it requires wireless technologies. And it requires three wireless technologies, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and location. What's interesting is Bluetooth is only used for discovery and reconnection. Most of what is considered wireless CarPlay, so audio signal, video signal, and the CarPlay protocol itself, all, all happens on Wi-Fi. So the way Car wireless CarPlay works is once it's set up, once you've paired it, you turn on your car, you're sitting in it, and you just don't plug in your phone. So it will connect through Bluetooth first, and will exchange the SSID information, connect to the Wi-Fi, and then you're connected. And then it will be able to initialize the CarPlay protocol and all of the information and all of the protocol it needs to properly communicate with the car. And everything after that will happen via Wi-Fi. Speaking of Wi-Fi, Apple recommends using non-hidden SSIDs, 5 gigahertz network, and 802.11 AC. If you're forced to use old technology like 2.4 gigahertz network, Apple strongly suggests you to disable Bluetooth once the CarPlay session is exercised via Wi-Fi. The main reason they say that is because they are uh, they said in their testing that 2.4 gigahertz on Wi-Fi can create uh, interference with Bluetooth, and since your phone is using Wi-Fi to communicate with the head unit, you don't need Bluetooth. Also, if you're a lucky customer using LTE on band 40, it will limit your 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi network to channel 6 or 11 for the same reason, because those channels will minimize interference. And you'll see, like, every time you go to dub dub sessions, you see that the Apple uses specific language to convey messages without being too much direct about it. And here was a good example. The language used around the usage of 2.4 GHz network is that, was that kind of, it's there, uh, but it's not recommended, but we are forced to support it because specific region of the world, whether it, it was not clear, but whether it was a legal or region, but it's, they say some kind of language like, yeah, we need to support it for specific localize, local, localization, location, sorry. And they didn't say which one, they just say, yeah, you might be forced to use it too. Lastly, Apple CarPlay requires access to the car GNS, GNSS receiver and the speed sensor. Uh, small aside, uh, GNSS means a Global Navigation Satellite System, and it's a nomenclature that just encapsulates both uh, GPS or GLONASS. And that's quite it for uh, developing wireless CarPlay. Kind of went a bit on the summary side uh, because there's a lot of technical information, but like last year's session, this one is full of recommendation of Apple and it's really focused for uh, the ed unit manufacturer. So if any of our listeners are working on ed unit, I'm sure you have already watched it. If not, uh, it's good for people like me that are curious about Apple's current car technology. Do you have any question about that session? Not really. I think it's really interesting that these were posted publicly because it's the kind of thing that you assume would normally be given behind closed doors to car companies, and having that insight is really interesting to people who are curious like us. 
Yeah, I feel even when I watched the other one last year, I feel that Apple opened the door because I think they were facing a bit of uh, they were facing some closed door themselves when trying to talk with car manufacturers. And maybe by posting them publicly, they are saying like, oh yeah, developer, like our normal developer community will be super excited about it because some of them are car lovers. And then it just shows like if people at car makers or at the infotainment system makers are interested by the iPhone, they can go on developer.apple.com and learn about it themselves and maybe do some legwork internally in their company to support CarPlay faster. And I think like WWDC is hard enough to get into as is that if you're someone from a car company, you wouldn't necessarily be able to go watch one of these sessions uh, because you wouldn't have a ticket. And it's not really worth it from Apple's end either to make it a general session that anyone can attend because the number of people that it affects is so small that it would probably be better to just post it on the web and let people view them at their own leisure and if you're unrelated to the car industry, then you can watch it. It's an added bonus. Uh, because I know, like, I, I have a couple friends in Japan who work in the car industry uh, on these kinds of systems. And, like, I know for a fact they were not at WWDC last week or last year. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And hopefully for them, it will be uh, easier to maybe push for CarPlay or easier for them to better understand CarPlay and better integrate it. So users like us can enjoy CarPlay in our own cars. Hopefully. Now, after talking about those people in the car industry, we'll talk about us in the app world industry with session 719, enabling your app for CarPlay. This session is really to explain to current iOS app developers how they can take advantage of CarPlay in their apps. Um, sadly for me, in our last episode, pre not in our last episode, in my last episode, when we talk about our predictions and wishes for WWDC, I wish that we would see a more open app development scene for CarPlay. And this year, CarPlay hasn't evolved enough where any developer can build any type of app they like on iOS. CarPlay is limited to three categories of apps. Audio apps, messaging and VoIP calling apps, and automaker apps. Two fun facts that I uh, two fun facts that I liked in that session is the first one is CarPlay apps are still behind closed doors. Yes, Apple is more open with those sessions. Yes, I think the documentation is super easy to have a uh, super easily available. But if you want to support CarPlay, you still re- re- need to request a CarPlay entitlement. And this entitlement is not general. So if you want to do an audio app, it's one specific set of entitlement. If it's a messaging app, it's a different one, the same for automakers. Um, Also, uh, in that session, they talked about CarPlay having its own human interface guideline. And it's quite interesting that Apple went to that level. And it's not surprising, but it's interesting that they went to that level. And I wonder how many... uh, Automakers will look at it for their automaker apps, but let's talk about uh, that when we talk about those types of app. So we'll start with the first category, and I think it's the most uh, common one right now on the store is audio apps. To me, audio apps are the category of apps that feels like it's the easiest to make CarPlay compatible. If you currently support the now now playing screen in Control Center, 
Carpet would use this, that same exact information for its own now plain screen. The only thing left for the audio app is to provide a specific data source containing a hierarchy of information to describe what Apple should show to the user. The developer of audio apps does not have direct access to UI components, so there's no direct access to UI kit, and Apple specify, specify a specific protocol or object to provide data, and that data source will help CarPlay create a, a, a UI table view slash UI tab bar base UI. And if you've seen screenshot of the Apple Music app in CarPlay, it is the same exact UI. I've been able to run Spotify and Overcast to audio apps that are currently right now supporting uh, CarPlay and the UI looks exactly the same. Only the content changes from one app to the other. Uh, obviously, um, because one app and not the other supports the same audio functionality, uh, like with uh, Spotify, maybe the skip feature will be five seconds or just like it will skip a whole track and not like 30 seconds with like a podcast app. The now playing screen is updated likewise. Um, CarPlay apps that are audio, they need to, they need to provide how many tabs they do and uh, the hierarchy. So they have, can have a hierarchy of folder inside of a folder inside of a folder. But uh, UIKit itself, the version that is running on CarPlay, will limit the number of folders you have inside of them. So they will number the, the depth of your three hierarchy. And it's important to know that even if you want to, like an infinite three to like, let's just say like if you're Apple Music or Spotify, you might want to browse the whole Spotify catalog. Uh, you CarPlay might limit you for performance reason. A new in iOS 11, which is something that I'll like to see. Uh, the now playing screen can change the playback rate. So it's I think it's a nice feature they have added for audiobooks app and for podcast app. And I guess that the redesigned podcast app on iOS 11 will support that feature. The second category of app is messaging in voice over IP calling apps. Uh, those two types of app are powered by Siri. If you've played with the messaging app in CarPlay, there's not that much UI because all of the interactions are powered by Siri. So the UI shows a typical like Siri animation, but you don't even see text feedback on the screen. Also, those apps should implement the appropriate Siri Kit 1010. Remember the one we discussed in previous episodes? And they should never present information visually to the driver. Obviously, that would be too dangerous. So Apple doesn't provide any APIs to do that. And please, listener, don't text and drive. If you're a VoIP app and you don't yet work with CallKit, CarPlay will force you to do it. The underlying message for this category of app is if you don't use Apple's latest frameworks in your iOS app already, it, it will kind of force you to do so. If you already support uh, SiriKit for the VoIP or the messaging intents and CallKit to integrate into Apple's UI for calling, CarPlay is kind of becomes for free. There's not that much work you need to do. Maybe they, they talk about notification to make sure that you don't show uh, content information, that you just show maybe like the sender on the the group from which messaging, inform messaging conversion it is. But except that, 
CarPlay will just become free if you support CallKit and SiriKit for messaging and VoIP calling apps. It's my understanding that that's more or less how Android Auto does support uh, basic support out of the box. Is if you're an Android app and you support basically the Google Voice related APIs, you automatically get free support in Android Auto. I think the big difference that they have is I believe you can present custom UI on Android Auto, whereas you can't on CarPlay right now. Yeah, which is not really true because we'll talk about the last well, category. Well, yeah, <laughs> those <laughs> lucky bastards. Yes. The last category app is the one that I'm most jealous of. And if we go back to my our WW episode, our pre-WW episode, when I, th- I was talking about more open app development, Automaker apps is what I wanted. So Automaker apps can create their own UI. The gist of it is it's an app that can just replace the whole ad unit. So you can control the climate, ra- the climate, the radio, the seats, locking, all of the typical features you see in a card ad unit. They have access to a CarPlay optimized UI kit. And the way to access to the CarPlay window is super simple. Uh, if you try to access programmatically to an AirPlay mirroring window, you know how to project custom UI onto an ad unit. Apple has defined a specific idiom for CarPlay, which makes it easy to identify the appropriate UI screen instance. So from what I've seen in the code that they demoed, it is exactly the same code. It's just that if you were to look at the idiom for TV, in that case, you would look for the idiom for CarPlay in the list of available screen connected to your device. And after that, you just have fun. You create your own window, you own your controller, and you just do whatever you want so there's something i don't understand about this kind of app and that is why it exists because isn't the entire thing about carplay is that it's effectively in certain cars like an app that runs on the head unit already so now you're running a car maker app inside of carplay which is an app on the head unit it's very strange yeah yeah uh, maybe i'll just finish finish the my section about ui kit on the car and then we'll come back on that sure so, um, moreover, Apple added that some of those UI kit controls might not be available on CarPlay. They really make sure they really sort of recommend that they should you should keep like button labels, lists, so table views, like tabs maybe. But I, I don't expect to see a switch on like CarPlay UI kit because it might be too uh, tiny. Also, they give uh, they give advice about which button style to use to better fit the CarPlay. I think if you use the system one, it just gives you a typical CarPlay look. And lastly, uh, they also uh, recommend that if you've played with UI focus and environment and related APIs, Apple will use those to handle hardware navigation devices like oh. a knob or the typical Lexus mouse thingy that uh, <laughs> Lexus car has. So any hardware controls that can be used in the typical ad unit OS can also be now accessed with CarPlay. That's good. To come back to your point about what's the goal of it, uh, those uh, automaker apps, what I feel is Apple can't force manufacturer to say like, oh yeah, yeah, just put an ad unit and the only thing it does is either Obviously, Apple will say the only thing it should do is CarPlay, run CarPlay, and then that's it. It would look strange because they would say, like, what happens with people that have Android phone? Obviously, you should provide Android Auto. But what if you don't want to plug in your phone in your car? 
they still need to provide a basic functionality and we see a trend of putting a lot of functionality in those add units so i feel i do feel strange like you that if you don't plug in your phone with carplay you might be able in the head you need to control all of the climate control uh control the climate environment of your car lock the car play with the radio and all stuff and there are even some cars that don't have hardware controls for that where you only have the head unit to do that exactly and then when you're in carplay the main reason why apple is suggesting automakers to do that is to make sure the user never leaves carplay because the second you plug in the phone and the last time it was used it was on carplay apple says you should go back to carplay if the user when it last started the car was using your own ui that's fine it makes sense that you should stay on your own ui but if the user was using carplay the user should go back to carplay no exception and then if you do that every time you enter your car plug in your phone or just use wireless carplay and you always use CarPlay, it will feel painful to always go back to the EdUnit's OS and then do stuff. A good example of that was one of my colleagues as a Volkswagen. And the Volkswagen navigation feature in the Volkswagen EdUnit has a nice feature, which is the following. When your car is running low on gas, the EdUnit receives a notification and shows you an alert that says, you're running low on gas. Do you want me to find the the closest gas station? And then if you uh, if you say yes, find me the closest gas station, it does and reroutes you to that place. CarPlay can't do that sadly, and maybe with those automaker apps, they will be able to do that. The reason why is automaker apps can communicate with the car using external accessory framework. So EdUnit should define an accessory protocol, and by doing so. Your app will also say, I'm supporting this protocol and that protocol. And CarPlay running into the ad unit will show the appropriate app that your ad unit supports. So Apple recommends that your app communicate with the car using external accessory, but that the app also stays useful even if when it's not connected to the car. So at that point, it is recommended by Apple that it uses the internet connection to your car to communicate with it, for example, to make sure that it's locked or to lock it. Or if you're a dummy and you forgot your key in the car, to unlock it. Because all of the ads I see these days for like those internet-connected cars functionality is like, oh my god, I'm so dummy, I forgot my keys in the car. Boop, that's done. <laughs> um, like with the other other two apps categories there's also specific siri kit intents that makes it available makes all of the feature that apple thinks automaker apps will do available unlocking locking the car making sure they no, querying the lock status of the car what's the current charge status of the car uh, change the climate control change the either the cold seats change the radio frequency all of that, Apple is expecting automaker apps to do that and also is providing Siri kit intents so you can use the voice command button on your steering wheel and just do the same without touching the screen. So that's it for enabling your apps for CarPlay. It, it was a super nice session, but the last category of apps make me super sad because I'm super, super jealous of automaker apps because what they've demoed to me feels 
like a base for full custom third-party application. But now that Apple is saying like, oh yeah, it's only for automakers, my hopes are really low. Hopefully, we'll see what they reserve us for us in the next year. But right now, it's kind of sad for me. And you know what? A, a, yes, and it's funny that you make that sound because one of the example of car maker apps they do is like, oh yeah, if you're a car maker that wants to do a performance like data logging application, I'm like, that's the exact <laughs> app I want in my car unit. Oh well, time to go work at BMW. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. So let's change topic and now we'll talk about Coromel. I think that's the first one you wanted to talk about. Yeah, before I go into the sessions in specific, I just want to give a brief overview of why I chose these sessions. Um, it's something that I've been discussing for the last year or so with uh, my ex-coworkers uh, and our mutual friends, uh, Shannon and Ben, uh, because... We like to think of ourselves as competent developers, and yet whenever anyone talks about machine learning, we just sort of start nodding and go like, uh-huh, yeah, okay, and we have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. Uh, so we kind of wanted to learn more about machine learning, and I guess that the sessions that Apple has put together for Coromel and their other machine learning frameworks are really great because they really... I don't want to say dumb down, but their target audience is not people who are already super invested in the machine learning community. In fact, that's sort of the point of the frameworks is that you do not have to know anything about machine learning to actually use those frameworks, which is great. Um, so if you're sort of clueless about what machine learning actually is, or you are a developer and machine learning technology scares the hell out of you because you don't understand any of the buzzwords, uh, these two sessions are incredibly good introductions to it. Uh, they leave out a couple of details, which we will get out, uh, get back to at the end of these two sessions, because there is sort of the elephant in the room of the thing they don't talk about in these sessions, and it will become incredibly clear why they didn't talk about it at the end. So I want to start with introducing Core ML. Um, the pitch for this session is basically that machine learning enables all kinds of experiences, such as image recognition and all that stuff. And Apple really wants to make it super easy for any developer to embed machine learning in their application via a framework called Core ML. Now, Apple uses machine learning extensively in their applications. You probably could tell at WWDC because they were saying it every three words. You probably got really shit-faced uh, drinking every time they said it. Um, I forgot how many times I did count the words. I think it was like 14. Yeah, it was at least in the Just for digits. the keynote. Yeah, yeah, just for yeah. the keynote, obviously. Because I would be just dying of like drunkenness. Yeah. It was for the whole WBC. It's a good thing I ran out of whiskey before the keynote. <laughs> uh, so some good examples of where Apple uses machine learning. Uh, scene recognition in the Photos app. Face uh, recognition. Uh, the keyboard on iOS uses it for smart suggestions and for autocorrect. The watch uses it to sub suggest smart replies and iMessage. Uh, this is actually kind of a cool feature that not a lot of people know about if they don't use iMessage, but like if someone asks you where you are, like the keyboard suggests to give your location right there. And there's all kinds of really cool stuff like that. Uh, have you seen it work though? I have. So, I, okay, I it's good. don't use iMessage regularly, but I have seen it work, which is more than I can say about iMessage most of the time. Uh, oh, come on. <laughs> I think my problem, the problem I have with it is using kind of like 
French texting language, it doesn't like it. No, much. that you're you shouldn't do that. That's the answer. Uh, yeah, fair. Okay, so basically, Cordemel tries to make available all of these facilities to all third-party apps. And people are going to say, well, why do I need machine learning? And when do I need machine learning? And the example they gave in the in the presentation was, let's say I'm a florist and I want to make an app for my flower shop or whatever. And I want to go look through a user's photo library and only show roses. Um, how would you do that? Well, some people would suggest you could filter the uh, the photos by color. So look for something that's primarily red. The problem with that, of course, is that roses aren't just red. They're in a bunch of colors. So then do you start describing the shape of the flower? Well, that's sort of complicated to do in a way that is going to catch the roses, but is also going to be maintainable going forward. And if you're a programmer, your brain is probably exploding right now trying to think about how would you write an application that would identify a rose from just a raw JPEG. Um, and so rather than writing a program that describes a rose, uh, we can teach the computer what a rose is, and then it can try to predict if the thing it's looking at is a rose and give you a confidence interval. So machine learning basically boils down to two steps. Uh, there's the training. So for the training process of something like an image recognizer, you would go on the internet or wherever, wherever, and you would get a bunch of images of various flowers and you would label each one. So you would say, this one is a rose. This one is a tulip, blah, blah, blah. You would get a shit ton of these. And then you would pass it through what's called the learning algorithm. And then that basically creates a model. And we will explain what a model is a little bit further. But basically, it's a program that is able to identify all of the various kinds of flowers that you passed in as input. Uh, all of this happens offline, uh, at least for CoreML. Uh, so you don't have to worry about network latency or anything like that. And it should also be noted that the entire culture surrounding the training of machine learning models is insane. It is basically most of what you can find about machine learning on the internet. So there are many, many different methodologies and libraries that exist to do this. Um, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. So the second step is inference, which is basically you give the model a picture of the rows and it returns a label of what it thinks it is and a confidence interval. And occasionally you can also get alternative suggestions uh, in case the confidence interval is too low so you can at least get an idea of what the alternative suggestions were. So all this stuff is great, but traditionally it was very, very hard to add to your application. Uh, and writing a neural network can be thousands of lines of quote, code to add to your app. You might not even know what a neural network is. Hell, I don't even know what it is, really, sort of. Uh, so. It can be challenging to just go on the internet, look at machine learning documentation, and figure out how to get an image recognizer in your app. Uh, on top of that, once you've gotten just the basics working, it's incredibly hard to get correctness, performance, and energy efficiency done correctly, because if you had trouble just getting the basic neural network going, good luck getting the rest of that stuff working. So Apple's machine learning frameworks package up all of Apple's own implementations of the neural networks and other machine learning buzzwords that I don't understand, uh, they use in their own applications and they've been testing them in production for years and stuff like photos and the keyboard and all that stuff. So I'm going to give a brief overview of the machine learning stack on iOS right now. I should say iOS 11. 
Uh, so at the high level, you have domain-specific frameworks. You have vision and national uh, natural language processing. Vision does object tracking and face de detection. I'm not going to talk about it too much because that's the second session I'm going to talk about. And there's uh, natural language processing, which is identifying which language is being used. Uh, if you've used the iOS keyboard uh, with multiple languages enable, you can seamlessly switch between languages and the NLP framework is handling that. And there's also something like named entity recognition. So if you use the word San Jose in a sentence, it's able to notice that that is a place in the sentence and pull that out. Uh, so you can do smarter analysis of sentences that are input into your application that way. Uh, then there's the lower level machine learning framework, which is CoreML. It's more generic algorithms that are capable of handling a wider range of machine learning problems. Uh, and under CoreML, uh, well, rather, what's powering CoreML is Accelerate, which is a wonderful framework for getting very high-performance uh, implementations of stuff on iOS, uh, mostly vector math and all that stuff. But there's other cool stuff in there. Uh, and by the way, if you have access to the WEC sessions and you are a super nerd, go watch the Accelerate ones because they're always good. Uh, it's also built on top of the Metal Performance Shaders, which I tried watching the session for, and I literally fell asleep while watching it, so I can't tell you what that is, but it makes stuff fast. So, CoreML, basically, it's domain agnostic. Uh, it can handle a wide range of different input types, uh, whereas Vision and Natural uh, Language Processing obviously can handle images and text, but not necessarily music, which CoreML can. Um... It also supports mixed in and out formats. So you can pass in an image and do sentiment analysis on it and get caption text back or something like that. Uh, so it, you, the in and the out format don't need to be the same format, basically. Uh, of course, CoreML runs on device. This is Apple's big pitch because it preserves privacy, uh, but it also keeps data and server costs down. And of course, it's available offline. The other benefit, of course, is if you combine it with uh, the camera or uh, AR kit stuff, you can do real-time machine learning with no latency, whereas if you were doing all of your machine learning stuff on the cloud, uh, you would have to basically keep sending stuff to the cloud every couple of frames, and it would be slow and not as good. Well, we can argue about the not as good part. Uh, I don't want to really do that this this week, though. Uh so all frameworks were basically covered in detail in their own sessions. Uh, this one is the CoreML one. I'm going to do Vision next. Um, CoreML is available on all four Apple platforms. And it's more than just APIs that are available to developers. It's also a set of developer tools written in Python that you can use uh, to convert various machine learning model formats into your applications, uh, into the CoreML format, which you can use in your application. Uh, I saw a post on Daring Fireball that was linking to some other article somewhere that was calling the CoreML file format the PDF of machine learning. And in a certain way, it's true. Apple basically developed this generic format, uh, which I believe is JSON-based, uh, to describe what a machine learning model is. And they have built converters for all of the popular formats that you can basically throw it in and get a generic model that you can use in your application. Uh, the point of CoreML is developers should focus on the experience of the app and not the implementation details of machine learning stuff they don't understand. Um, three high-level points. It's simple, it's performant, it's compatible. Uh, all of the different supported model types use a unified API, uh, which means you don't 
even if you're using completely different domains, uh, let's say you're doing music genre analysis and you're using sentiment analysis on images, all of that will look similar because it uses a unified API. Uh, you don't have to worry about using three different libraries with completely different styles of APIs. Everything is unified. Uh, like we said, it's performance because it uses inference engines that have been used in Apple products for years, so they've been battle-tested, and compatible because you can convert from any format, uh, any popular format, into CoreML. So what are models? Well, models are effectively functions that were developed by learning from the data you gave it as an input. So what a machine learning training algorithm does is it looks at the inputs and it learns basically what the correlations are between the input and the output you gave it is, and then it tries to project that onto other inputs in the future. It basically writes a function that is able to try to project what the output would be for the input based on what its knowledge is of the original set you input. So yeah, so the support for different kinds of models in Core ML is very extensive. It supports various kinds of neural nets, tree ensembles, support vector machines, and generalized linear models, because everybody knows what that shit means. I was about to say that. I was like, yes, yes, Yannick, yes, I know that. <laughs> of course. Um, but yeah, like, like I said, all of those words, if you don't understand what they are, because I sure as hell don't, uh, you don't need to know them. You can just focus on the use cases. That's the point of Core ML. Now, where do models come from? So Apple, of course, recommends you can go to their machine learning landing page where they have a bunch of task-specific, ready-to-use models that you can drop into your application and it's ready to go. Uh, of course, there are going to be applications for which Apple's models are worthless or non-existent. Uh, and in those cases, they want you to tap into the machine learning community and go out and explore these various libraries and models that exist out in the wild. And of course, they recommend go on iTunes U and take a machine learning class and maybe you'll understand what these crazy words I've been saying are and all that stuff. By the way, the Core ML developer tools, uh, which I said were written in Python and that handles the conversion between popular model formats and the Core ML format, are open sourced. So if for some reason you want to use a crazy ass uh, machine learning model format that nobody's ever heard of, you can write your own converter, contribute it to the repository, and maybe next year at WWDC they'll be holding up a slide that says, hey, we support this rando ass format that nobody likes. Uh, so that would be cool. So once you've gotten your model out of the ether, how do you use it? Well, step one, you drag your model into the Xcode project. Um, that automatically generates a programmatic interface for you. It basically creates a Swift class that uses the standard Core ML API protocol to basically make everything look like a standard Swift object. You can program using this interface and compile your app, and your model gets compiled from the Core ML uh, model format into a runtime-ready representation that will perform well, and then you've got machine learning in your application. Uh, so the demo for this session was the flower identification engine that I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, they collected a bunch of photos of flowers and labeled them. They trained the model with it, converted it to a core ML model. And with three lines of code, they could basically click on an image from a user's uh, photo library and automatically detect what kind of flower it is and give... Uh, 
confidence interval for it. Three lines of code is actually pretty ridiculous. <laughs> and the lines of code are not complicated. They're basically like, okay, I load my image, I pass it to the thing, and I look at the results. That's basically what it is. So do you have any questions on this session? Because that's basically it. Uh, no, but what I liked to hear about it was that for dummies like us that doesn't understand like machine learning and all of that stuff, it's just like somebody does the hard work for you and then your job, your art job is to focus on the user and that's kind of the main goal of that framework. Uh, I think you, you're right and we are, I've just been discussing that with our colleagues too at work is like machine learning is kind of the future but it feels to me that when we're just like user experience developers it's hard to see where it should fit and a technology like Korma just like yeah somebody will take care of making the computer intelligent you focus on that bring your feature like trying to trying to identify flowers I don't know why you would do that but whatever your goal is to do that you can focus on the great user experience and then we'll give you the tools to make it easy to you for you to integrate that in your user experience. And I like that goal. Yeah, uh, there is... It, I try not to focus on it too much because I don't want it to be too obvious, but there is an obvious glaring flaw with this session. But I'm going to go through vision first because the same glaring flaw is in the vision session and then we can talk about what this glaring fly is. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned it, but we'll see at the end of this one. So vision framework. Again, I don't have the full name of the session here. I believe it's like vision something blah blah computer vision on blah blah Apple platforms. Uh, something like that. Uh, what? Uh, so vision, of course, is a new framework which is introduced in iOS 11. And it does a lot of shit. Um, so uh, let me interrupt you. Vision framework semicolon building on CoreML. Session 506. Oh, that is less exciting than what I thought it was. But okay, uh, sure, why not? Uh, <laughs> so what is included in this supervision framework? Well, there's a lot of stuff. There's face detection based on deep learning. There, uh, It's higher precision and recall uh, than existing face recognizers in the operating system. We will talk about it more in a little bit. But uh, the basic... Uh, features of it is that it's better at small faces, profiles, partially occluded faces, and if you are wearing a hat or glasses, it's better at that too. Um, there's face landmark identification, so you can actually draw precise outlines of the eyes, the nose, the mouth, as opposed to previous uh, face identification uh, code that was included with the system that would only give you boxes around those parts. Now you can get precise outlines of those parts, which is really cool. Uh, image registration. So this is how panoramas work in the camera app. Uh, you can align two images together based on analyzing for common features. This is now available to you in the Vision API. Uh, rectangle detection, barcode detection, text detection. Uh, some of these might sound familiar because they were in existing frameworks, but they've been improved in the Vision framework. Uh, object tracking. So if you give it a sequence of multiple frames, uh, it is able to track objects that move so you can do things with those. So Vision Framework is not limited to uh, individual frames. It can also handle sequences, which is great. Um, and Vision Framework provides the imaging pipeline for CoreML models. Uh, and of course, sort of like how CoreML was high-level solutions to generic uh, machine learning pro uh, problems, 
This is high-level on-device solutions to computer vision problems. It's for people who are not computer vision experts. It's for people who think, I just want to know where the faces are so I can swap them. Uh, it has implementations of both dumb and deep learning approaches to fit your performance needs best. And of course, it does it all on-device, so privacy, no usage fees, no data transfer fees, no latency, all that good shit. So what are the big concepts uh, that exist in the vision framework? You need three things to analyze an image. Uh, they separated them into the asks, the machinery, and the result. So you have requests. You have request handlers, uh, which you can implement custom request handlers if you'd like. Uh, there are two types of request handlers, image request handlers, which allow to interactively explore an image and hold on to an image for the entire lifecycle of the request handler, and you can optimize it very heavily. Or sequence request handlers, which has different uh, memory management restraints because you can't necessarily hold all of the frames in memory at one time or then your RAM usage becomes huge. So it tries to track the stage throughout the sequence, but it doesn't hold all of the images as it moves along and it present, prevents certain kinds of optimizations from being doable. Um, and then, of course, there's a result, which is the observations that have been made from the image that you passed. Um, much like Core ML, it requires very little code to integrate into your app. Face recognition is three lines of code. Pretty simple. Uh, if you want to do stuff like, for example, uh, object tracking, sequence handlers are a little bit more lines of code. It's four lines of code. Ooh, Ooh. scary. But it's still 25% more. It's true. Um, so what is the kind of thinking you need to do when thinking about vision tasks? Well, there are like three things you need to consider. There's, uh, what is the image type I want to pass to it? Because there are five different types that are accepted by the vision framework. Uh, what do I want to do with that image? And what performance do I want? Um, so let's start with image types. So the five image types, well, five types that you can pass to get an image in the vision framework is, uh, core video, core graph, uh, wait, no, is that, Core video or shit. It says CV. I forget if that's core video or if that's computer vision. See, this is the problem with prefixes that are two letters. This gets uh, confusing. I would put my guess on core uh, computer vision since it's more related to that topic. Yeah, I don't remember the core video uh, prefixes at all. But anyway, uh, so there's CV, there's CG, which you may know, core image, which is CI. You can pass an NSURL or an NSData. Um, so the type you select is obviously going to vary depending on where the image comes from. Uh, one thing to note is that the imaging pipeline is already in place in the vision framework, so it will automatically scale your stuff, uh, adequately for the job that needs to be done. You don't need to do it yourself. In fact, if you do it, you're duplicating work and this will negatively impact performance. Uh, also make sure to pass in the XF orientation for certain types of object, uh, image types because otherwise your objects are going to be upside down, and then the algorithm is going to be, I don't see any objects when the object is there. It's just upside down. Uh, so any kind of streaming source of visual information, you should use a CV pixel buffer. Um, anything you are loading from disk, you should use NSURL. Anything you are loading from the network, you should use NSData. If you want to pre-process images, use CI images and if for some reason you want to use an image that is loaded in your application's UI, you can pass it a CG image ref. 
this is like the last resort option according to uh, the presentation, and I would agree. Uh, so then, what do you want to do with that image? Uh, so you can use existing request handlers, or you can build your own. Um, we mentioned it a little bit earlier. You can do either image or sequence request handlers. Pretty good stuff. Uh, then you can worry about performance. Uh, you can basically use quality of service uh, queues, queues and stuff like that to basically ensure that your performance, uh, you're not like bringing down your entire application by basically jamming everything. And uh, don't forget to use the main queue for UI updates because apparently people forget that. <laughs> so a lot of people will raise uh, the point that a lot of stuff in the vision framework sounds very familiar. Uh, some of it are recognizers that have been in core image for many years. And you might be wondering, is there a difference between what is in core image and what is in vision? And there's even some APIs in AV capture framework, if you still use that. Uh, so what are the differences? And I'm going to use the face detector as the example here. So like I said, the vision one is super accurate and gives you even more detailed information, but it is slow and power hungry, especially on older devices. Core image is sort of the middle ground. Uh, it's still good to use, uh, especially if you're targeting like earlier 64-bit and 32-bit stuff. Uh, if you really don't care and you want the fastest, most power efficient uh, stuff, but you want like very vague results, AV Capture, which is basically, I believe what, um, actually, no, I was going to say it's what Photo Booth was written on, but I believe that basically uses Core Image now. I think, yeah, I think you're right. AV Capture is like the old shit that was used by iChat AV when that came out. Ooh. So this is some legacy stuff. If you love the legacy stuff, you can use AV Capture. It's really great. Oh, wow. Now I remember. Remember this effect in uh, iChat TV where I could put like custom background behind you? Yeah. Oh, man. That's basically what AV Capture is for. And the results were not great at the time. And I assume they are still not great now because like, I don't think AV Capture is a very maintained framework. Uh, but it's there. Uh, so they didn't really speak about whether AV Capture stuff is going to continue existing. It sounds to me like it might not because the, they didn't really say anything nice about it other than it's fast and power efficient. Uh, what they did say is that core image detectors are going to continue to exist for existing users of those APIs, but basically from here on out, future updates to any of these recognizers are going to go in the vision framework and you should try to move to them if possible. Uh, so you can get much better results by moving over to vision. So from what I hear, none of them are officially deprecated. They're just soft deprecated and they sh will become deprecated in future iOS version. I, I think AV capture is going to be the first to go, but uh, yeah, I would move to vision as soon as possible for your application if you're doing any of this stuff. Um, so they did three demos. And they were super impressive. The first demo, well, okay, the first demo wasn't impressive. Uh, the first demo was, <laughs> let's take the live iPhone camera feed and wire up a, rec a rectangle identifier to it. So they just did it. And this is apparently the basis for the document scanning functionality in iOS 11 is they literally just wired up the rectangle identifier. Uh, okay, cool. You did it. Congratulations. Not very impressive because that was already in core image, right? So it's not super wow demo. Uh, demo 2 was slightly more interesting. Uh, you could combine vision ML recognition models. Uh, so basically what I was talking about in the core ML session, 
you can write your own image recognition model and wire that up with the rectangle identifier to basically say, hey, this looks like a rectangle. Is it an iTunes card? Uh, and you can do this, and it works. And then Demo 3 is my favorite. Um, so there's this project, which I believe was done by the U.S. government, called Amnest Vision. And basically, they asked a whole bunch of people to write numbers from 0 to 9 on a post-it note in handwriting. And you can go to their website and download all of these samples to train a machine learning model to identify numbers from 0 to 9. And so basically what they did is they combined everything that we sort of saw in the session and they said, okay, I'm going to try to find a sticky note using the rectangle detector. Then I'm going to use core image to skew that image to be a perfect square. And then I'm going to run the MNIST vision classifier on it to actually read what the number is on this post-it. And then they tried it out live by writing numbers on post-its and it works. And that one was much more impressive to me. Uh, because it was so fast. And like, if you know what it's doing behind the scenes, you're like, it shouldn't be this fast, but it is. Uh, so that was really impressive. And that's more or less where the session ended. Have you figured out what the big glaring flaw with with these two sessions is? I think so, but I'm not sure. What's your guess? My guess is if Apple needs to tweak any of anything in those engines, they need to update the OS. No, actually, I, ah. I, I don't really care about that. that that's not, well, one, we, it's sort of presumed that this is the case because, uh, well, first of all, I should say, the things that are in the OS are basically just algorithms. They're not really things that are going to evolve over time to become smarter because that's your model. It's what you make yourself that has all of the intelligence in it. So OS upgrades aren't really going to make your app more intelligent. Uh, but to might... do all of those vision stuff, is Apple integrating their own models in vision? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the vision, like the high-level vision features, like the recognizers and the detection and the object tracking and all that stuff. Yeah, sure. That can require an OS update. But, I mean, it's like any other OS feature. If there are improvements, you're going to update the OS, right? It's not a huge deal. Um, the flaw that I was trying to point out over these two things is I keep talking about these models. They never actually talk about training a model, right? <laughs> oh, and, and it turns out that that's the hard part. <laughs> yeah, they kind of assume that somebody did that for you. They're like, "Hey, you can go download these models on the internet, or you can learn how to train a model." And then you go look up like a tutorial on how to train a machine learning model, and you're like, "Well, on a good computer, this may take several days or several weeks to train a model." And you're like, "Okay, well, I don't really have a computer to run this on right now." <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like, like I just mentioned when I was talking about the benefits of Corbels. Like, somebody's doing the hard work for you, and then you just take that, and then you do the hard work. Except this is being pitched to, like, individual developers who are like, you can do this yourself. And it's like, yeah, I guess, if I can train a model. Uh, So this is the big omission, and I think it's the thing, like, they should have been a little bit more honest about what the implications of training a model is because they did not mention a single thing across all of the machine learning sessions about how you train a model. They just sort of gloss over it and say, I trained a model, I gave it images, it did the thing. (laughs) They never mention how long it takes. Yeah, Uh, trust me, it works. I mean, yeah, sure, it's great. Uh, So I think this is the biggest glaring flaw with the machine learning sessions uh, that I've seen uh, from Apple is 
anything that has to do with models. Well, I understand they don't want to be too specific because there are so many different frameworks. I believe they support like eight to 12 different machine learning model formats. And several of these have either application specific needs or uh, they have different means of training their things. Um, problem is like, you still need to learn about that stuff. And they didn't really give you any starting point to do that. Um, maybe the developer portal is slightly better at that. And I know that they provide models on their website. And if the application you need is covered by those models, it's great. Uh, but like when I saw this, uh, vision presentation, uh, I w immediately thought of something from a podcast I watch while well, it's a YouTube show that I watch. Uh, loading ready run is basically this YouTube channel that does a bunch of magic related stuff. And they have a card identifier where they have a camera that sits over the middle of the table where they play magic. And whenever they play a card, they put it in the middle and it automatically identifies which card it is. And they show a close up of the card in the corner so you can read the text and the text because otherwise it's impossible to follow. And I was like, okay, this weekend I'm going to write an identifier for like these six different kinds of cards that are very common in magic just to prove that I can do it. And the problem is I had to go look up how to train a model. And I was like, okay, well, this was not what I signed up for. <laughs> and I, I mean, I don't think that, I think it's great that Apple is doing this and providing these APIs. And we're certainly much closer to every developer being able to integrate this into their applications than we were before. And this is wonderful. And I don't know if you watch Planet of the Apps. Did you watch it? Uh, not yet, but it's on my list. Okay. Um, but I know where you're going with this. That's okay. I can continue. Yeah. Th there was basically like this guy who did an AR related application. It was super hilarious because like uh, it, the re episode was released right the day after they had announced AR kit and his entire business was making an AR framework that he would sell to other developers and AR kit basically obsoletes his entire business, which I found hilarious. Uh, like, just like how ARKit made AR available to pretty much any developer who wants to develop AR stuff, although I would argue having seen Facebook's AR APIs, Facebook stuff is much simpler to develop for. Uh, it's JavaScript, but it's simpler to develop for. Uh, but whatever. Uh, that That's just an aside. Um, just like how ARKit sort of made AR available to the masses, Core ML sort of makes... Uh, machine learning available to the masses as long as you can get over this initial barrier and it's entirely possible that entire classes of uh, machine learning model training software or something comes out to be higher level for these kinds of developers i would not be surprised if that happens um but right now it's just a little barrier to entry for uh, people who are thinking of getting into machine learning features in their application and i feel like they should have been more upfront about that uh, in the presentations, but otherwise it was super interesting and I was not expecting this framework to become available at all before WWDC. Uh, and I am pleasantly surprised by this kind of stuff because it's actually pretty powerful stuff and I'm excited to see what comes out of it, um, in the coming months. Yeah. And we've been hearing about like other companies talking a lot about machine learning. So it was, we, we kind of expected a bit because Apple was talking a lot about it in their own features and their own products. But now that they pushed something super fast, like a year after they started to talk about machine learning in their own products, that's amazing. Same with the AR, right? The, like 
Tim Cook loved doing at AR for the past three years, but we never knew if it was like a research product or something coming soon. And then now we have the proof. It was something coming soon and it's now out. Well, now so, with uh, Tim Cook talking about autonomous cars, I'm pretty sure the next year we're going to have autonomous car kit and we're going to be able to put a fucking car in our apps now. Uh, I don't care. I just want <laughs> open car play stuff. That's okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, there was something I was going to say, but I completely forgot, uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, but yeah, that's it. Okay. And I do hope that, like I said in the intro, we wanted to do something different with, uh, this year post WWC episode. And I think it helps you to maybe see the different type of talk that Apple is providing at WWC. Uh, I don't know if you were like me, Nick, in the past, but in the past few years, I was like kind of favoring everything. Like, yeah. I want to watch all of the things. And this year, I've kind of decided to go more on, um, like really focused, like what I need to learn about iOS 11 and what's the new stuff that is important to my day-to-day job. I've added a couple of talks, like the CarPlay ones that were like really left field. Uh, I still haven't watched the CarML one, but knowing that Yannick will talk about it, I was like, I'll put it on back burner. That's okay. But if my strategy right now for DubDub starting this year and for the next few years, I still have 20 talks, sessions to watch still, but they are all mostly focused with work. Uh, before WWD started, I still have 20 to 25 sessions that was still favorited from last year that I've never finished. And it was funny because most of them were related to tvOS and watchOS. Wow. Technology, technology that sadly I would, I, last year I really wanted to play with, but sadly didn't have time throughout the year. So if I have maybe one suggestion for you for next year WWDC is find the 10 to 15 at most 20 session because I would say during my week I want I watch maybe 10 sessions so let's say 10 hours of content to just uh, give a round number and I might have still like 15 to 20 hours of content left that I really need to go through um if you and what I realized is if you identify stuff that you really need, you'll be more motivated and less overwhelmed about everything you want to watch. After you've done that core content, you can do like what we did for this episode. Go watch left field stuff. Stuff that you are interested but might never use for the next year or two. But we do hope that with this episode we uh uh kind of uh we do hope that we helped you like go on that left field, discover new technologies, like just be curious about those new stuff. And who knows, maybe you'll learn something new that you didn't realize that you'll use in the next few weeks in your apps, but you might now. So and what's funny is like last year and this year, my job basically does not involve iOS for the most part. Like we do web apps, so you can go to the web app via iOS, but for the most part, WWDC is completely irrelevant to what I do uh, at my day job now uh so f- like last year i basically only looked at new technologies that i knew nothing about because i basically didn't have to care about what the new changes in ui kit is like congratulations you changed the fucking rotation api for the 19th time uh <laughs> but um yeah I, i'm oh my that i mean that... the good ios developer memes am i right yes oh <laughs> yes this joke is never old yeah uh, so like I, I watched stuff like the care kit and the research kit sessions last year and we reported on it, uh, when we did our cool things about WDC, I was like, there is a bunch of graph APIs in this framework. Nobody cares about. And, 
there's always cool stuff you can find out that is happening within Apple. Uh, I've been really busy, so I haven't had the time to watch much past like day two of WWDC so far. But I have basically like everything starred because everything is interesting. Uh, but I have like none of the UI kit stuff, none of the Coco stuff, none of the foundation stuff. Like all of the stuff that would actually be useful to all iOS developers, I do not have checked. And I only have the crazy shit uh, on the side frameworks uh, checked. And sometimes I watch a metal session and I fall asleep or I am completely not understanding anything that is said. So I skip it. Uh, but oftentimes I end up learning a whole bunch of new stuff about technologies that I would never use. And sometimes I try to find uses for those technologies and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but it's just nice to know what's out there. And like I said, like accelerate is awesome to watch even though like nothing i do really requires super high performance like it's good to know that those apis are there for when you need them good so that's it for w post wdbc uh episode uh if you have any comments about whether you like this format more than the previous one feel free to tweet at us and then we will uh reply to you if you're complaining about the format uh, just i'll just ignore them i just want compliments <laughs> okay <laughs> I think, come on i'm being honest here at yep. least so if you want to find show notes for this episode where you will find uh, links to well assuming apple doesn't make them become 404s uh, by the time the show comes out uh you will find links to all of the sessions we have talked about at limitlesspossibility.net slash 66 good job yeah Nick. i did it uh if you want to find all of the show notes for our past episodes, you can go to LimitlessPossibility.net and you'll find them all listed there. You can find the show on Twitter at Limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. It has a round avatar now. Good shit. Uh, you can yeah, I didn't catch up on those Twitter news. Oh, oh well. it's terrible. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Sakurina. I've always had round icons enabled in TweetBot, so it's no big deal. Uh, and you can find Nicolivier at Luconoche, L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-G and I think mine are rounded to a, if that's the new thing I'm not sure oh well we'll see yeah we'll see you in two weeks see you in two weeks